Many organizations have struggled in the midst of the pandemic. Think tanks and policy shops are the place where hallway conversations, events, and gatherings are not just nice, they're absolutely necessary. Robert Doerr, president of American Enterprise Institute, discusses how AEI is thriving, succeeding, and expanding their reach and influence, even in the midst of a pandemic. Beyond organizational success, Robert discusses the principles that lead to the most American of dreams, opportunity and upward mobility. These topics and more on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? We're super excited to have Robert Doerr, president of American Enterprise Institute, AEI, in the building with us today. Socially distanced, of course. Uh, really appreciate you spending some time with us uh, on Therefore What? Welcome to Utah. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start just with a, uh, a little bit about AEI for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar. Uh, this is a, an organization, a think tank with a rich history, uh, with a deep commitment to principles and policies uh, that really make life better for everybody. Free markets, free people, limited government, uh, strong American role in the world. Those are the principles that AI scholars mostly believe in most of the time. Uh, we do believe in academic freedom, so we recruit people to come and do their best work on the issues that they're experts in. We're Washington-based but not Washington-focused. We're committed to the United States of America. We want to make our country better and stronger and filled with greater opportunity for all. We happen to believe, by by and large, that – Free markets and individual liberty is what leads to the best outcomes for the most people. And we think that the history of the United States has in some way proven that. Mm. Uh, so as you look at the, the history of, of AEI, most people associate with the economic component to it. But as you just described, it's, uh, it's much more than just the pure dollars and cents of it all. Uh, it's the principles that really support that and really drive freedom uh, at every level. Absolutely. We've had scholars who write about social and cultural issues. We've had scholars who write about faith and the importance of faith in people's lives. We've had scholars write about the constitutionalism. We have, I think, the best young conservative constitutional scholar in America in Adam White. Mm. Yuval Levin, who I think has been yeah. on this show, is an AI scholar and the leader of our social, cultural, and constitutional studies program. And then we have a domestic policy program under uh, Ryan Streeter, who's a former Bush administration official, domestic policy uh, chair. And so we focused on public education, charter schools, free choice, um, poverty. I'm the former poverty scholar. I came to AI as a former uh, social services commissioner for both Governor Pataki in New York and Mayor Bloomberg in New York City, um, who believed in work as being the best way out of poverty. And so, yeah, we cover the whole gamut of issues in America. With, I think, some of the best minds. Yeah, and and bringing those great minds together. Uh, before we dive into some of the uh, the principles and some of the policy components, I, I want to talk a little bit in terms of how you're functioning in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, we were discussing uh, before we came into the studio uh, just how hard it is that uh, I always say when I when I go to AEI in Washington D.C., it's an awesome building, it's an amazing building, but the thing that's really cool is just the buzz in the building. The hallway conversations are so rich. So give us a little perspective. How is it being a think tank with an (laughs) army of scholars in the middle of a pandemic? Well, it's been uh, sad, as it has been for many respects for many Americans, uh, because you're absolutely right. Our community is what makes us especially strong. We have a lovely building, 
great uh, common places for people to get together, do seminars, do major events, uh, have meals. Uh, and during the pandemic, with the rules that the city of Washington has imposed on businesses like ours, we're operating at about 15 or 20 percent capacity in the building. I'm there. I'm kind of a – I have a kind of captain of the ship mentality. I don't like to uh, uh, be uh, away from the office. I'm out here in Utah this week, but most of the time I've been in the building. And uh, so that's been a shortcoming, no question. Mm-hmm. But we've compensated because we've – taken full advantage of uh, virtual programming. We've uh, put together a whole series of interviews and conversations with major uh, American leaders and, and officials and thinkers. And our community has actually stayed together uh, as strong as, as strong as ever. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's yeah. I think America's leading expert on the pandemic, is an AEI scholar. And he appears for us in all kinds of ways. Um, and we've done that in other ways too. I've interviewed Senator McConnell. I've done we've done interviews with other great leaders in this very intense political time. Yeah. Um, so we and then of course our scholars still produce the written work. I mean, <laughs> writing and publishing written material is still part of American scene, and they're able to do that whether they're in our building or not. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, <laughs> and that's where the great writing usually happens. It's, it's that hard work and heavy lifting far away from the cameras that uh, that make those camera moments. That's right. uh, actually possible. Uh, have you learned anything uh, in terms of where you go next uh, as an organization uh, in the midst of the pandemic? Has it caused you to look at either the way your scholars are functioning or your interaction with members of Congress and other thought leaders around the country? We certainly have learned to use technology more effectively. Uh, I've done uh, a lot of interviews. I, I interviewed John Mackey, who's the yeah. uh, founder of Whole Foods. Did a great interview with him. We might not have been able to do that as well, given where he was and where we were. Mm. Um, so I think we've gotten better at that, and I think that's a good thing. I think also, honestly, our building is a lovely building, but it's limited in size. And so to the extent that our scholars can work outside of the building and still be part of our community, we may take advantage of that mm. in the future. If they'd rather stay and work from home more then that frees up space for us to recruit more scholars who can use the building. So that's a, a learning lesson. But I have to tell you the most promised, most um, uh, sort of demanding lesson I've learned is that our community likes to get together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have leaders and and supporters and thinkers all across the country who look forward to those times when we come together yeah. at various events and see each other face-to-face. Um, and they miss that and they depend on that. So one way in which – they also get to size up the emerging leaders of mm. uh, the conservative movement in America and and also Democrats as well, and, and they miss that a lot. And so um, I'm under some pressure to as soon as this pandemic <laughs> breaks – to get our big events back in place so that we can gather. Well, good, because it's on my calendar for whatever day that is. You are always welcome, (laughs) no doubt about Uh, it. There's no event like an AEI event. And uh, I always said when I was on the Hill, uh, I often learned more in the hallway conversations after or before an AEI event uh, than anywhere else. And it's just fostering uh, that idea of elevated dialogue and conversations. Not that everybody agrees, uh, but you can have real serious conversations about real policy uh, that can actually take you somewhere. And they're very thoughtful, patriotic people. So if you walk into our building and there's my predecessor, Arthur Brooks, or Charles Murray, or Nick Eberstadt, or Dr. Michael Strain, um, you know, it's a it feels good to be in yeah. a building where that kind of thinking and, and uh, uh, thoughtfulness. And they're also, turns out, given all their brains, they're nice people too. They're nice guys. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of great people there for sure. Uh, well, I want to I want to dive in now to. Uh, 
really your expertise. Uh, it's one that we're very interested in uh, and so many people are interested in in terms of that upward mobility, poverty and upward mobility. Uh, it's something we see uh, in a unique way here in the state of Utah uh, as a place where upward mobility is is still a thing. There mm-hmm. is sort of the American dream is alive and well, at least uh, at least here. Uh, but would love to get. Let's go back a little bit in terms of your background um, in New York and uh, some of the things that you learned about poverty, poverty programs, uh, and how we help people move forward. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my father uh, ran an anti-poverty program in Bedford Stuyvesant, which was one of the largest uh, slums in the in the country at the time. And he was, uh, and his program was promoting business development and economic development and, and self-reliance and personal responsibility. Uh, but forces were arrayed against his efforts and efforts like his, among others, uh, that were the sort of federal government top-down approach, uh, very dependence-focused, put people on uh, assistance, uh, not focused on work as much and more on entitlement or on um, uh, rights, welfare rights. And I saw that that force hurt New York City and, mm-hmm. and prevent my father's programs from really taking off and having the success they should have. And it wasn't until – and so as I came of age, I wanted to do – get into that business to see if I could change it for the better. And at that same time, Bill Clinton was saying he was going to reform welfare. Newt Gingrich was going to reform welfare. And big significant changes took place in the late 1990s that said to uh, uh, assistance providing programs at the state level that if you provide aid, you also have to expect something in return, that there's a – um, 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 mutual relationship. It's not a one-way street. And so we introduced I, – I began in, in my service in state government in 1995 um, – requirements, uh, work requirements, requirements for a certain kind of activity for people that were seeking assistance to help them get on the path toward employment and off of assistance and further up. Yeah. And that worked. Poverty declined. Work rates increased. Upward mobility increased. Um, and the city and the state of New York became stronger, as did the rest of the country. Welfare reform was a success. And I was part of that in the beginning and implementing it in the state and city all the way until I came into came to AEI. But helping people get up the, above the first ladder, the first, you know, above the poverty line, we found isn't enough. What we really want is people to be able to move even further up through the acquisition of skills, through the acquisition mm-hmm. of experience in in the work work life through better education through um, other aspects of their community being able to thrive and prosper and that's really the next challenge for us and we've got a scholar Scott Winship who is yeah. a poverty expert but he's decided that the what he wants to be an expert is on upper mobility and learning from places like Utah where upper mobility does happen where people do advance um, um, I happen to think it's not only happening in Utah. <laughs> Boyd, I'm sorry to tell you that. We do not have a corner on the market, to uh, be sure. <laughs> when, when the free market system is working well and, and uh, employers are stretching for employees and training uh, because the labor market is tight, there's upper mobility all over yeah. America. Uh, we have a scholar, Michael Strain, who wrote a book called The American Dream is Not Dead. Yeah. Um, and he's right. There, We tend to get very cynical and down about – the opportunities that do exist in America. And if you tell people uh, of any kind uh, that their chances are limited, their opportunities are, are are not available, that being black, you know, condemns them to a future of, of uh, not doing well in American society, they will believe that mm-hmm. even though it's not true. And yeah. so we tend to uh, push a more hopeful, more positive message. And we also believe more fact-based. Yeah. 
So we've talked about poverty. That's getting above a certain level. We've made progress there. We talked about upper mobility and trying to do better there. We could do better there. Um, but the other thing that is the sort of the bugaboo that plagues us is equality. Mm. People in America have been persuaded that equality is about equality of outcomes for everything um, so that people of different backgrounds are equally distributed in any number of outcomes. And um, that's not what equality is about in the United States. Yeah. Equality in the United States is about equality before the law and equality of opportunity. What happens after that, we're going to have unequal outcomes. It's just the nature of um, of the, the kind of society we have in those unequal outcomes, I think we'll have the most advancing advancement for the most yeah. people. But it's not going to be equal for everybody. And And I think... Sometimes in the rhetoric of the left especially, there's this, there's this promise of an equal outcome regardless of effort or regardless mm. of, of, um, of, of talent or personal uh, appeal. And I think that's a promise we shouldn't make because the fact is individual um, effort does really matter. Yeah. So um, those are the three issues. Uh, the one last thing I just say about poverty because that is the thing I was most focused on. I did not want to live in a country – where people who were born at the very bottom remained stuck in the very bottom and the very bottom was awful. Mm -hmm. um, I think through this combination of requiring work in return for assistance, rewarding work, we do a lot of that in the United States. Yeah. If you go to work, you have a couple kids, you're going to get access to certain supports to make low wages go further. Um, talking about family, we haven't talked about that enough. A key determinant in whether people will succeed in America – is whether they're living in households with two active and involved parents there for the long haul. I know lots of kids in single-parent families do well, and I have great admiration and affection for single parents who struggle. But the fact is children do better if they have two active and involved parents there for the long haul. And in the United States, that happens most often in marriage. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to require work, reward work, talk about family. And then the fourth thing is, is that – and we learned this in 2019 – if the economy is working on all cylinders, if the labor market is tight, if employers are stretching to hire people who – even people who they used to not hire, like people coming home yeah. from prison or people with disabilities, then the opportunity for people to move up is just so much greater. So in the world of social services, I'm a – I have to admit to all of your listeners, I am a former bureaucrat. I, I have to admit that I'm a recovering bureaucrat. I worked in government, God forbid. But I was always the first one to say, let's make sure – that we do things that make the business environment positive for businesses in New York City, especially businesses in New York City that are going to hire people with limited yeah. skills. And so whatever it was, including fighting against you know, uh, mandated minimum wages, I would be there because uh, any job is better than no job. And given the way we support work for people um, – um, imposing burdens on business that make them less likely to hire is going to hurt the most vulnerable potential employee. Yeah. And those were the ones who were in my offices seeking public assistance because they were struggling. Yeah. Oh, fascinating stuff. Uh, I'm a big Scott Winship fan. When he, Of course, he was part of the Joint Economic Committee and uh, did some extraordinary work on social capital there. Uh, and I was I was looking back this morning uh, just for some of these factors that you've been talking about, uh, Raj Chetty and, and kind of the upper mobility in terms of education, social capital, uh, disciplined government. 
uh, and then uh, community investment uh, and that shared commitment. Well, well, just a tough point on that. Raj Chetty's first major report on upward mobility showed that the factor that led to the most upward mobility, the most positive outcome, was the extent to which people lived in communities where a majority of the children were raised in two-parent households. Mm. Now, Raj Chetty, a little bit influenced by his sort of uh, – whatever, need to make the left happy with happy. him, yeah. sort of underplayed that finding, yeah. and he stressed other things, but that was the biggest was finding. The big, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I, and I think that's so important that we come back to that and uh, and look at those components. I want to ask you, though, before we before we shift, um, because you did, you, you have been in government, uh, and government does have a role. Uh, you know, Lincoln said that, that, that there is a role for government, lift, lift artificial weights from all shoulders, clear the path of laudable pursuit. Uh, and so how, how do we get to that balance of what is the proper role of government to help, as you said, create that equality in opportunity, not necessarily equality in outcome, because that's up to the individual? Well, AI is um, – we're influenced by libertarian thinking when we definitely believe in in the less government possible, but we're not anti-government. Yeah. So AI scholars do believe that there's an important role for government um, and the key is to find the balance where what you're asking of taxpayers is not so burdensome that you, you've really uh, beaten them down mm-hmm. and what you're delivering in services or outcomes is measurable and, and shows an impact. And I think too much of what we do in the United States in government is unmeasured and unheld accountable. So yeah. I, I happen to think that um, I work in safety net and worked in the safety net world for a long time that we've got – we've overdone it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we're past the balance. I, I wouldn't yeah. – while I say we believe in government, we don't really believe in more government. Right. We believe in effective government and I happen to think we could do just as well with um, with less and um, – that's one of the things that we charge our scholars at AI to be thinking about, how, how we can do that. Yeah. And just to give you an, an, an example, um, in the world of, uh, of the, what's called the social safety net, you know, we spend on health care. We spend on food assistance. We spend on work and employment. We spend on child care. We spend on direct assistance to people in need. Of all of those, by far the biggest is what we do in public health insurance. Yeah. Medicaid and Medicare – are 20 times the size of what we do for employment or childcare. Mm-hmm. And while I I believe that there's a role for government even in healthcare in some ways in helping the most vulnerable who can't afford uh, uh, the cost of healthcare, that is disproportionate balance. Yeah. That that uh, I used to say when I was testifying on important issues in before the state legislature in New York that. If I was testifying about child care or early learning or jobs program for people coming out of prison, it would be me and a few scruffy advocates. <laughs> <laughs> but if I was testifying on Medicaid mm-hmm. or you know something about the biggest expenditure we had in social services, it would be me and the most powerful lobbyists in the state. Yeah. So there's something a little bit wrong there. And yeah. if I was going to say one area where I think we just have to find a better way to marshal and manage – Government dollars. It's in healthcare. Yeah, uh, and so many interesting things there. You mentioned the the safety nets. I I have a really vivid memory of uh, we went to a, an organization down in southern Utah, helping people get off the street, get cleaned up, you know, get work, get moving. 
uh, and it's just a great program. They you know they self fund. They do you know no government money. Uh, and this young man came in, and we we heard his story. You know he'd been on the street. He's he'd lost custody of his two kids. You know homeless, all the things. He gets his act together. You know, he's moving forward. He's doing all of these great things. He gets to where he can get, you know, an apartment. So then he gets some visitation with the kids and he yeah. has this great job. And he, he came in and he was so excited because his boss was so happy with him. He was getting a raise. Yeah. Yeah. And then the caseworker had to say, yeah, you can't accept it. Because if you accept that, you're going to lose this, you're going to lose yeah. this, you're going to lose your kids. And uh, Yeah, there is a, there's what we call a benefit cliff yeah. in the United States where if you um, are receiving some forms of assistance and working uh, and you want to work a little more or get a promotion, you lose more in what you were getting in assistance yeah. than you gain in, in salary. And that's a big problem. That is an example of where government is overreached and uh, we've got to get our, our priorities straight. Um, I have a simple – I thought you were about to tell a story that I often tell about – when um, I was the commissioner of social services in New York City, we had one of those sort of gatherings of smart people and there's um, the commissioners and the not-for-profit leaders. And by the way, not-for-profit leaders and faith-based do tremendous work in this area. And then we had the testimony of a guy who had, has had some difficulties after coming home from prison a couple times. But then the third time, things really went well and he had gotten a job. He had gotten his act together. He was supporting his kids and it was all great. And someone raised their hand and they said to him, what was the key thing? What was the thing that made it work this time and it had failed before? And of course, all of us providers of aid leaned in and we were going to hear them. He's going to say something we did. It was some trick of the, some government program. And he looked out and he said, when I realized that I had a role in my own life, that I, that I was responsible for my own outcomes and that I could rely on myself to deliver, that's when it made a difference. Yeah. And that really was a testament to – my belief that you have to always be saying to people you're trying to help, um, we need you to help yourself too. Yeah. Uh, we, have, we have a great uh, group here that uh, we need to connect you with called the Other Side Academy uh, based on the Delancey Street model. Uh, these are people who have been in and out of the prison system uh, on and off the street. Uh, I think uh, out of their 100 students, uh, I think they have like 400 years of you know time behind bars. Uh, and yet they function without guards, without cameras, without any kind of counselors. Uh, it's all you know on this system of integrity and trust. And uh, But we were talking to them the other day. In fact, these uh, 25 of these uh, former felons uh, wrote an op-ed uh, that says, holding us accountable is the essence of compassion. Uh, and that's part of, I think, what you model in so many ways at, at AEI. And I'll tell you, you know, I knew uh, Governor Herbert's team and I knew his work and I did some po- uh, joint appearances with him on poverty. Utah really does have a model uh, approach uh, to these issues. Um, you know, uh, when you're from New York and you go to work in New York government, <laughs> you're surrounded by people that think there's no possible way they could learn anything from anywhere else. And I really rejected that all the time. And uh and the evidence and the outcomes. Yeah. You talk outcomes. about mobility. Yeah. Better mobility here than there is in, in parts of in New York State, New York City for sure. And um, we need to learn from these models and yeah. take them to other places and help those communities get stronger. Yeah. So I want to shift now in uh, in our closing moments here uh, and talk about the the politics of it all, uh, because uh, in order to get good policy through, you you got to navigate the political channels. Uh, obviously, it's been a very turbulent year uh, and uh, a lot of uncertainty yet yet to go. Uh, so as a as a think tank, um, what what is your approach and give us your perspective? Where do you think what lies ahead? What do the next six months look like? 
Well, first of all, our focus is to focus on the substance of the issues and let our scholars focus on the, the, the facts and, and call them as they see them. Yeah. In the past year or four years, that's resulted in sometimes us saying things that are positive about President Trump and his leadership and sometimes negative. Uh, in this very divided world, divided both between the left and the right but also among the right – We've been able to preserve our credibility by, by doing that and being characterized neither as never-Trumpers or as Trump cheerleaders. Um, right now, however, um, there's a, a, a bitterness and an unpleasantness in the debate uh, on both sides but, but especially now on the right in, in which friends and people that, that stand for the principles that we all should agree on are being attacked because they aren't sufficiently loyal to the former president. And I think that's very damaging. And I wrote a piece on it that yeah. was published yesterday. Uh, coming to the, I came to the defense of someone who doesn't need my defense because she's such a great uh, leader in America, Liz Cheney. Uh, you know, she took a principled stance on yeah. the president's behavior, um, not related to the core conservative principles that she cares about and that, we, that those who are, think this way all care about. And yet she's being attacked and sort of they're talking of excommunicating her from the movement. And I think that will lead to greater success for the people who want an even bigger role of government, greater success for the people that want to impose more regulations on business and impose more mandates and impose higher taxes, a greater shift toward a more socialist America. And if that happens because the right of center world is divided over these personality clashes or these – over, over how to deal with President Trump, then the people that caused that division are going to be to blame yeah. in my judgment. Because if the the world of sort of – that I'm talking about, limited government, greater freedom, less regulation, lower taxes, if that world is united, that world will carry the country. That is where the heart of America is. We are a right of center country. But if that world is divided – the power of the of the of the left is is strong enough to move the country in a direction that I think we'll have a hard time recovering from. So, yeah. I think the next six months are key because um, uh, you know we we've got to we've got to uh, uh, get people to come together and to try to reason and work together without uh, sort of uh, excommunicating important leaders out of the party. Yeah, yeah, the, the purity tests of uh, right. are not helpful. <laughs> Uh, in the end, and, and it's and, so. And, yeah, and I would also just say one other thing. I, I, the uh, uh, President Trump uh, had some good qualities, and they did some important things. But the the last four months uh, have not been great, mm-hmm. and and he's made mistakes that have hurt him, and hurt the cause that some people who support him believe in, and um, people like Senator Romney. Or Senator Lee or Liz Cheney, who have pointed that out, um, deserve our support and credit, not our criticism. Yeah, great, great point. Therefore, what? Well, as we uh, round out, the, the program is called Therefore What? Uh, and so we are to that moment. Uh, and it's the Therefore What question. So people have been listening to I'm us. I'm very about- worried about this. <laughs> this, is the big, this is the big test, Robert. You thought this and was going to be And I'm a think tank fun. president. I'm supposed to be smart. <laughs> uh, so people who've been listening to us for the last 25 minutes or so, uh, what do you hope uh, the, the Therefore What is for them? What do you hope they think differently? What do you hope they do differently as a result of listening to us today? Well, I, I'm going to focus on the 
area of, of policy that I'm most expert in, and I hope that they uh, uh, think that uh, people who care about helping people who struggle economically can show that um, compassion and that caring um, by insisting that people um, re- um, remember that they have some personal stake in their outcomes mm-hmm. and that, that it's not, um, it's not uh, stingy or negative or mean to say we all have potential, we all have dignity and we can all make an effort and then if that effort is made, we all also can help people, that there's a two-way street to helping people move up economically through various programs. That's true in the church as well. In the church that I'm part of, the Catholic Church, there's a key element of personal yeah. responsibility. I'm sure it's true in the um, Church of Latter-day Saints as well, yeah. and it's, I know it's true in the Jewish faith as yeah. well. And, but it's also true in government programs, and that's what I want to say is that it's, that's part of it. Um, the political stuff you made me talk about, uh, there's no therefore what. I made my point. No. That's all I'm going to say. That's good. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Robert Dorr, president of AEI, uh, one of the great thinkers, one of the great leaders, one of the great voices in our country, and he leads an army of principled voices uh, that are worth checking out, spending some time. If you want to get some great insight on where we can go, where we could go, if we elevate the conversation, stick to the issues and focus on the principles and the policies, uh, the best days really are yet ahead. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Boyd. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?